It's Britney, bitch. Welcome everyone to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Katie. And I'm your host this week, Rory. Creepy Rory. Sad Rory. <laughs> Sad Rory. Sad disturbed Rory. Just how you doing there, buddy? This is not a fun topic, like even a little bit. That's weird because you said it was awesome earlier when you were trying to read it. And you were like, I got to put this down. It's so exciting. Yeah, is that how that happened? There are a few moments in this book where you're just like, what the fuck am I reading this for? And you don't want to read anymore. What book is that? Uh, this is the uh, pa- A Parasite in the Mind. It's the second book. In the series? In the trilogy. You have one more to do? Yeah, I think... For the most part, I haven't read any of the last book yet, but... <laughs> You're considering not reading? I really don't want to. I will for you guys, just so you don't have to, but I really, really, really don't want to. He's such a terrible shit person, and I know he's only going to get worse. I don't like it because it's bad. Just bad. There are parts in the book that I just I didn't want to read through. Like, I didn't want to finish reading the sentences. Well, we appreciate your sacrifice, Rory. Right, yeah. Katie? Mm-hmm. Welcome it's, to my life. Yeah, you Katie, asked for this, Rory. I know. And the more I do this, the more I think Katie's an absolute fucking nutbag. Because there's no possible way someone should be walking around with just all this stupid shit in their brain. Why would you want to? <laughs> I want to think about kittens and and mittens and... Other stuff that rhymes with that. Well, okay. Well, where were we last week when we ended the wonderful part one? When we left off last week, Bar Jonah had just been caught for the abuse and kidnapping of Alan and Billy and was being held on 50,000 bond at the Worcester. It looks like Worcester, man. It does, but they don't say it like that because Massachusetts says things dumb. Worcester. And I actually have, I uh, I have online here... Wasta from my stepmother Joanne, who is from Concord. Wasta, she says. Wasta it is. Wasta. House of Detention waiting for his trial. On December 14, 1977, Nathaniel Barjonia pled guilty to attempted murder and kidnapping and received the maximum sentence of 18 to 20 years. His written confession was read aloud in court. And most of the information discussed last episode came straight from his confession. In case you didn't listen, allow me to paraphrase. I am a disgusting, pedophile, monster, piece of shit, asshole, scumbag, and I did everything they are accusing me of. That was Nathaniel Barf Jonah? Yeah, that's him. Hell yeah. So, basically, he kidnapped two boys. If you didn't listen last week, which you probably should, otherwise you're jumping in halfway through, but he uh, kidnapped two kids from outside of a theater took him out to a tent abused him thought he murdered one of them left him on the side of the road the kid was still alive he ran and called the cops cops caught him found the kid in his trunk who he thought was dead also was not dead but he was fucking up yeah they finally got him so and he's now on trial right or he's already been he pled guilty pled guilty pled guilty now he's being housed yep Barjona would be housed in the Massachusetts Correctional Institute in Walpole, Mass. He was transferred to MCI Concord, <laughs> Concord, where he would spend the next two years. 
During this time, Barjona began to petition for his transfer to Bridgewater State Hospital, where he had a friend-slash-pen pal named Wayne. Wayne and Barjona often wrote back and forth to each other, and Wade had convinced him that Bridgewater was the cat's pajamas and Barjona should get there as quickly as he could. What did he say that he was so great about it? He had a little bit more freedom. He was allowed to walk around, and basically it was just an all-around less strict environment as far as jails go. And this was a mental hospital? This is a mental hospital. Which generally are less restrictive? Yes. So how did uh, Barjona meet this Wayne character? How'd they start? Well, they had been housed together in county, I think, and met going to a court date. Because that's how, basically, this is the only place that Barjona meets any people that he considers his quote-unquote friends, but... After <laughs> friends. After countless calls and petitions from his mother, Tyra, Barjona was recommended to BWSH, or Bridgewater State Hospital, for full clinical evaluation to see if he met the state criteria of sexually da- of a sexually dangerous person. How hard would it be for this guy to meet that criteria? It Not hard. It should be right there, I think. Bridgewater State Hospital at this time was known by pedophiles as graduate school. Their pedophiles would get their doctorate in child abuse. Like, that was one of the things that they said, was that you went in, no, kind of after being caught what you did, and you learned a thousand more tricks to the trade. Just because there were so many creepy pedophile fucks in there? Basically, yeah. They yeah. would just share their fucking nasty secrets? Mm-hmm. I hate this. Yeah. In 1979, Barjona was admitted to Bridgewater State Hospital for permanent residence. But there was a catch. Instead of only being there for 18 to 20 years that he was originally sentenced to, he would serve one day to life in the facility. This was crafted by the two intake psychiatrists who had met and treated Barjona. They both agreed that he was in fact a dangerous sexual predator that should never be released from prison. Barjona remained at Bridgewater State Hospital for 13 years and showed no progress towards rehabilitation. Two forensic psychologists interviewed him in 1990. Dr. Liza Brooks concluded that after two interviews, Barjona, without question, reoffend in the same nature as his original crimes. Because of this, she believed he should never be released. Barjona was set to be evaluated by another forensic psychologist, Dr. Leonard Bard. Barjona denied Dr. Bard an evaluation, but that didn't stop Dr. Bard from doing an evaluation in absentia. What's absentia? Uh, he's absent. The guy's not there. He basically oh. reviewed every document from when his arrest to his entire time in Bridgewater State Hospital. He evaluated the entries from his time there, specifically noting Barjona's obsession with eating human flesh, methods of torture, and dissections. So he just admitted to the doctors there that this is the stuff he want, was into? Yeah, stuff that he thought about, anything like that. The evaluations of Bard and Brooks sent Barjona into a rage. He called his mother and demanded that she find some Christian psychologists to evaluate him, which Tyra succeeded at doing. Is that how it works? You can just like be like, I don't like what these guys said. I need new people in here. Well, he believed that he was being treated poorly and unfairly, and so he tried to have someone from the outside come in and evaluate him. Oh, religion's real fair, bud. Well, I, and the, one. the court actually did agree and say that it was okay, so... Weird. Tyra succeeded. Good job, Tyra. The two chuckle fucks that evaluated Barjona are named Richard Ober, Ph.D., and Eric Schweitzer, Ph.D. Barjona put on a show for them, recalling a story of his own rape and torture at the hands of some neighborhood kids. 
The story is very graphic and, of course, completely made up. But here's a quick rundown anyway. While walking home through a wooded area at 10 years old with his smaller, weaker friend Kevin, a group of 13 and 14 year old boys grabbed them, tied Kevin up, and poured gasoline over his head. They proceeded to gang rape and sodomize Bar Jonah with objects and forced him to watch as they tortured poor, weak Kevin. From inside, Bar Jonah felt God give him strength to overpower the boys and start swinging at them with a righteous fury. He hit two of the boys, which showed them that he was not to be messed with, and scared them away. Not before they lit poor weak Kevin on fire, though. Barjona then claimed to be an Eagle Scout that knew first aid and saved Kevin's life. Tremendous. At 10 years old, he was an Eagle Scout and knew all these things because he was just that good and saved this kid's life. That's what happens when the power of Christ compels you. Exactly. I, I have to say, even if you're certified in first aid... Call the fucking paramedics if someone just got lit on fire in front of you. <laughs> yeah. You are not that certified in first aid to take care of that. Yeah. Hospital. He whips especially, out his fanny pack. Especially if you're a 10-year-old. Yeah. Oh, he had his Eagle Scout fanny pack. He whipped it out. He's got his burn cream, his gauze packs, his triple antibiotic. He fixed him right up. That is like the worst thing to put on someone who was just lit on fire with gasoline. Oh, you're supposed to pee on them, right? Because it's eating through their skin. On top of them now being burned. What is through their skin? Gasoline. Yeah, but triple antibiotic cream helps that, right? Yep. The two chuckle fucks were especially impressed when Barjona told them he only had heterosexual desires and a pen pal fiancé. Named Wayne. <laughs> Ober considered this a maturing of his sexual attitudes. Barjona also made up a story about being gang raped again the year before by prison guards who wanted to rectally examine him for contraband. To which he refused on account of the homosexuality. Oh, because God wouldn't like it. Yeah, and he specifically calls him out as the black guard didn't like his insolence and decided to teach him a lesson. They took him to a cell and called over seven more guards, who all took turns sodomizing him. He claims to remember only waking up in the hospital and his rectum bleeding profusely. Ober, after not using a single test on Bar Jonah, surmised that he was not at the time, likely to victimize others due to uncontrolled desires. What? How do they get to that conclusion? Just through the faith of God, my friend. Ah, uh, God will save him. Mm -hmm. Schweitzer actually did administer tests during his evaluation. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the Rorschach Test, and the Thematic Apperception Test. Kitty, would you care to elaborate on any of those? The MMPI is basically, I don't know the first one, I don't know how many questions was on it, but the two, which is the revised edition we use now, is 567 questions, I believe. And it's true-false, and basically they score you, and it sh reveals any mental illness you have going on. It's not like your normal personality test, quote-unquote, that you take. It's like the SATs for mental illness? I guess, kind of. The Rorschach, everyone knows what that is, basically a projective. You look at an inkblot and you tell them what you see. It's always boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Not for Barjona. And then the TAT, which is the thematic apperception test, you look at pictures of ambiguous situations and you like create a story around it. And then they use that to perceive how, how you relate to people and how like important your interpersonal relationships are. Both of those are projective, which is basically it's up to the test giver to determine the results, which 
is not 100% accurate all the time. The MMPI is one of the most used and one of the most psychological tests that you can use. Well, Barjona had taken all these tests before. In fact, just 10 months earlier, he had failed them with Dr. Brooks. So he kind of knew how to cheat the system when it came to these sort of things. So the doctor who was looking at things like more scientifically, he failed. Now he steps up here with his new buddy, passes the test. Exactly. Tricks one, of, one of the reasons the MMPI has so many questions is to catch you trying to bullshit. Well, I'm pretty sure over 13 years in a mental hospital, you've probably taken it more than once or twice. Yeah, I mean, it's set up in a way, though, that it knows when you're trying to fake it out, basically. I see. Can't fake it out if you're just Rory and every answer is boobs. Convinced of his changed ways, both Dr. Chucklefox deemed Nathaniel Barjona should not be designated a sexually dangerous person. They believed his faith in God would keep him on the right path, and his sexual urges showed no recidivism in the last 13 years. That's probably because there aren't any kids in a prison. That makes sense. Uh, well, what is a sexually dangerous person? like? Because he seems to fit the bill to me. So in Massachusetts, and this is the most recent law, but it says a sexually violent predator is a person who has been convicted of a sexually violent offense or who has been adjudicated as a youthful offender or as a delinquent juvenile by reason of sexually violent offense or a person released from incarceration, parole, probation, supervision, or commitment under blah, blah, blah. That goes into the actual like subdivisions of the law, Okay. but I don't know how it was back then because our sexually violent predator laws are relatively new and really only started being made when Jacob Wetterling was abducted and murdered and Patty Wetterling basically started advocating for sex offender registries and housing laws for sexually violent predators, which she now regrets, but that's a whole other podcast. podcast. So, but either way, doesn't it seem that Barjona would have technically fallen under being this type of person? Yes. Not, not if Jesus helps you fake your way through two psych evaluations. Dude, Jesus faked it till he rose on three days later. The problem with this, I said it in the last episode too, is that predicting dangerousness, especially, well, not especially, it's easier with sexual dangerousness, but it's not accurate and it's very difficult to do and most people don't rely on it. So since he had this period of recidivism because he was in prison, that basically takes away a whole chunk of information you could use to prove that he will be dangerous in the future. Again, there are no children in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On February 12th, 1991, both Dr. Chucklefox went to a judge with their findings and to demand the release of Barjona immediately. Judge Walter Steele agreed with the two doctors' finding and issued the order for the immediate release of Barjona. They took him back to Bridgewater and forgot about him for a couple of months. Jonah complained to anyone that would listen that he was being held against his will and that he knew his rights. It was June 28th by the time Bridgewater received an order to release Barjona to the streets. So they put it off a little bit. Yeah, no, they put it off a little bit. But they mostly forgot about it. And it actually comes back to bite him in the ass later because he files a lawsuit against them for being held against his will for the last six months. And they pay him. Fuck this guy. Barjona's mother, Tyra, was now 75 and had made the 180-mile round trip to Bridgewater once a week for 13 years. 
Damn. This would be her last trip up there, though. Barjona was coming home. She had picked up a new outfit for Barjona and headed down the road. By the time she got there, Barjona was waiting with a stack of heavy boxes right outside the door. He claimed he hurt his back, and he made Tyra load the heavy boxes and demanded that she take him to a burger joint for food. Didn't he eat, like, five hamburgers, too? Yeah, I think he ate six hamburgers, three boxes of fries, four milkshakes, and uh, some sort of pastry for dessert. He ate so much that by the time he was done eating, the outfit she brought him didn't fit. Well, that's the thing, is that he had lost a lot of weight in prison. He was down to, like, 275 pounds. So he's... <laughs> He was down like 120 pounds, so he was thought he was starving. His body disagreed. Yeah. Can you imagine how hard you'd shit after having that fucking meal? Barjona only lasted a little over a month on the outside. On August 9th, 1991, Barjona had been out for a lunchtime stroll past the elementary school when he came upon a running car in the post office parking lot. Seven-year-old Michael Surprise had been left in the running car while his mother ran in to mail a package. The line had been a little long, so it took her a bit longer to get back. Michael looked up when a fat man in a coonskin cap opened the door and stared down on him. Barjona laid his full weight across the boy, grunting and sliding his chest up to the boy's face. His wet shirt pressed against Michael's face, who tried to scream, but could only choke on wet cloth pressed against fat covering his face. So he's just... He's trying to smother him. Rubbing his fucking... Yeah. ...mass on this child. Yeah, he's trying to smother him with his weight. Really? Mm-hmm. Michael's mother damn near ripped the car in half when she walked out and saw a fat piece of shit in the backseat of her car. She grabbed his hair and punched his nose as hard as she could. Blood poured out like a faucet. She continued her attack and pulled the fat man off her son and threw him on the pavement. Fat man screamed how he was only trying to get out of the rain as he stumbled up and ran. Police and an ambulance showed up minutes later and took Michael to the hospital. At the hospital, Michael and his mother could not identify the man, but gave a description as best they could. The cop at the scene recognized Barjona's description from about 15 years earlier. They arrested Barjona back at his mother's house at around 3 o'clock and managed to get a handwritten confession about his intent to kill Michael. He literally will, like, confess to anybody, it seems. It's like, yeah, I did it. Let me write it down. Let me tell you. Yeah, he always puts, like, a little caveat that if he did something, it was because he was blacked out or he didn't remember, but then he'd write a full confession on it. (laughs) I don't remember, but here, publish this. He also knows that it works very well for him to just confess and do his time because he can get out and get away with it. Yeah. It's much easier to confess and just go straight to jail than to be held and go to trial and put yourself through that much more time in jail when you could be just fighting for a Christian doctor to claim you're sane and not dangerous. The police released him on his own recognizance later that evening. Barjona went home, looked up the surprise address and called a cab. The surprise's address and called a cab. Barjona pulled up to the house. Michael's mother heard the cab door, looked out the window, and saw Bar Jonah staring in. She quickly turned off all the lights and called the police, locking herself and Michael in the bathroom upstairs. Bar Jonah turned, got back in the cab, and headed home. So he was just trying to scare him? Yeah, 100%. He was trying to intimidate him. Well, it's not hard when you're a big, fat fucking slob and you lumber out of a cab and just stand there and stare. Yeah. 
This is where it gets a little legally weird. As he was put before one judge who kicked it down to probation saying that this guy wasn't going to do jail. An hour later, the case came across another judge's desk who was ready to send him up to Concord for the rest of his life. But there was a plea for two years probation and it had already gotten through. And the second judge changed his decision and supported the first judge's findings, adding on that Barjona needed a psych evaluation 24 hours after his release. This did not happen, as Tyra had worked out a deal with Bob, Barjona's brother, to move them both to Montana the next day. So essentially, flee to Montana. No, he basically, yeah, basically, pretty much. He was going to leave Massachusetts and go to Montana to complete his probation that's where he was going to start his probation and complete it. See, I feel like that probably no one knew that except maybe Barjona and Tyra and old Bob. No, he did tell the uh, psychologist when he was being evaluated that his plan was to go to Montana where he would have familial support and would be able to fit in a little better and didn't have a stain against him and shit like that. So this has been a plan for a while, but... After this last bit of trouble, now that he was clear, they needed to get out of the town. I think his probation officer in this case was kind of happy to just pawn him off on another state. Absolutely. That makes sense, because normally they don't even let you leave the state when you're on your on probation. So they're like, yeah, take this guy. Get him the fuck out of here. I think as long as you arrange it beforehand and don't just, like, leave and not tell anyone, you can... You just have to be transferred to another probation officer when All you get legit. to your new place. Papers, you gotta have papers. Hey, you wanna go to Montana? You gotta have papers. So we're gonna gloss over the three-week road trip that his mom and him took across the country because, one, I feel it's just fucked up because he made his mom drive the whole time, and two, he also made her stop at all sorts of weird locations for him to get out and wander around and stare at the stars and shit. Three weeks it took him? Yeah, because Barjona kept making her stop. Like, and she's 75 years old and can only drive so long a day. <laughs> it's like, your probation officer wants you in Montana a week ago. Yeah, but he didn't like driving. The catch is, I don't think he had a probation officer in Montana, did he? He did. His name was Redpoint. Okay. But, uh... He didn't really he, well, keep track of him? No, he did. He actually tried. He he tried to contact Massachusetts a few times about, like, why is this guy on, on supervised probation? What the fuck is happening? This guy, to me, seems like he should be still in prison. Yeah, you guys sent me a pedophile child rapist, and now you just letting him roam my state? Yeah, and so he never, after he raised the alarm with Massachusetts, he really never heard back from them and couldn't just change the agreement that they had made, I guess, and uh, allowed him to go on his unsupervised probation. Bar Jonah reopened his toy-selling booth at the local flea market and quickly began to set his same old traps with the kids, luring young boys in and their mothers as well. One unlucky woman and child were Julie and Sean. Sean was a lonely kid with no father around, so he loved the attention that he would get from Bar Jonah whenever he and his mother would head to the flea market. They knew Bar Jonah from around church, but really got to know him through his booth at the flea market. Like, they really just, got to know Yeah, him. no, they just, Julie and him just started being friends. He, she thought he was a sad man, but a good Christian man, so she'd bring Sean around because Sean made him happy, and he made Sean happy. So she just literally trusted the wrong person. She just literally had a really bad sixth sense. 
Yeah, but he put on a good show, too. Yeah, that's true. You talk about Jesus, you yeah. got the mustache, and you don't look like you could move fast enough to catch a small child. People might trust you. Yeah. Bar Jonah would babysit Sean from time to time, and one night, after months of friendship, she asked if Bar Jonah would be able to watch Sean overnight at his place. Bar Jonah agreed, and on December 18th, Sean spent the night at Bar Jonah's apartment. That seems like it's pushing it a bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can blame the mother no, in this case because there was n- absolutely no way. The first thing when you look at someone is to not assume that they're a pedophile and going to molest your child. Especially if your kid like actually likes them and nope, that's the problem. Has As spent a mother, time you with have them. to think yeah. that everyone's a pedophile. Everyone's trying to get your kids. That is mothers, a horrible way to live your life. Mothers, yeah. you must be on top of this shit. And that's a horrible way to raise a child. There are constantly in everywhere. fear. Google it. Right before Christmas, Julie was having guests over for dinner. Sean was caught in the living room playing with himself. When Julie took him upstairs and told him that it's okay to play with yourself, just not in front of others, she was surprised that he did not stop doing it even as they were talking. He said his penis itched. And after some coaxing, he pulled down his pants and showed his mother. The head was dark red and very swollen. He wouldn't say how long it had been like that, but Julie assured her son that she would take him to a doctor and get it looked at. Sean began to scream that he didn't want anybody else to touch his penis. Julie, alarmed by anyone, the anyone else statement, asked Sean who else had touched it. He said it was Barjona. Julie immediately called the pastor of the church and said she wanted to harm Barjona. Pastor told her to calm down and that he would call Bob, Barjona's brother, and sort this out. Julie went ahead and filed a police report anyway, and Barjona was arrested on January 20th, 1994. Barjona's family hired a criminal defense attorney by the name of Flaherty, who worked with a private detective that managed to get a signed letter from Julie stating that she did not wish to have her son testify because it could result in adverse effects on the child. By some miracle of the court system, Barjona managed to wait out the 18-month 18-month right to a speedy trial in Montana. I don't know what you would call that. Uh, they violated his constitutional right? Well, they really didn't because there's not really a number that says your right to a speedy trial has 18 months. It's just kind of like a common thing that after 18 months, they usually dismiss it. But So maybe this one fell through the cracks too. Right? Yeah, I, I think like... that's what it is because the case was dismissed, dismissed against Barjona and he got to weigh, walk away like a straight-up free man. More than likely, his defense attorney waited and waited and waited, and then he went before a judge and said, where's my speedy trial? And they went, oh, okay, yeah, it's been 18 months. We violated your constitutional rights. We have to drop the case. Grimy fucking lawyers. Yeah, and that's... I mean... Well, and here's the thing, though, is that he gets away with so much shit just by working the system. He gets... The, the way he started his little flea market thing was he got a check for six grand from the state of Massachusetts for housing him illegally and shit like that. So the man knows how to work a system and get away with it. It's so fucking annoying. But And this, this time he got super lucky. I mean, this you could technically blame on the prosecutors for not taking anything in front of a judge. Oh, yeah. well the Because they're the ones that should have had a case or at least gone before a judge and said, we need more time. Can you have him waive his right to a speedy trial? In which case, another hearing would have been ha- held, and if not, they should have just tried it and gotten it over with. So Yeah, because they probably would have won, because Julie only wrote that statement because she felt that Sean 
really didn't want to send him to prison for the rest of life. So one of the things that Bar Jonah said was that if he told anyone, he would get in so much trouble that he would go to prison forever. And Sean didn't want that on the, his conscience. He didn't even want to tell Julie that it had happened. Fuck this guy. Yeah. Bar Jonah had one friend in Montana, and that was Doc. Doc was a monster as well. He may not have killed the boys or had much of a violent streak, but he was still a fucked up child rapist with a half a century of molesting and raping children behind him. He was also one of the founding members of NAMBLA, the North America Man-Boy Love Association. And their goal is to... Was. It's was, defunct. Okay, good. Their goal <laughs> was to spread the word about man-boy love not being a bad thing and that it should be presented in a better light in context. I think this is warped into what it, what they refer to as MAP now, which is Minor Attracted Persons, which is... Bullshit. I'm not even going to get into it. <laughs> but yeah, terrible. I think because the, the NAMBLA is defunct and ended in like the 70s and there was some like spinoff groups that tried to keep it going. And obviously this is not something that's going to just like fit into society and people are going to be okay with. And now it's warped into MAP. He also owned 60 plus cats and not a single litter box. Oh, I bet his house smelled so good. Straight up, everyone knew that his ha- Like when the cops came to arrest him once, they had to push open a door that was barred with a mountain of cat shit. Like he literally had piles of just cat shit everywhere. So deep that you couldn't even open a door and things like that. So, <laughs> Don't go in there. That's the litter room. Yeah, but they didn't. Really, he didn't really care. He liked the smell. Also, he and Barjona were lovers and would occasionally get sexual pleasure from each other. They were also rival love interests for a young boy, Zach Ramsey. I hate saying that sentence. That's so gross. Yeah, they were rivals with each other, they right? They were like rivals Zach with Ramsey each other, Zach Ramsey wasn't yeah. interested in both of these men. Well, well, we'll get into that later. Probably in the next episode we'll go into that a little deeper because... It's it's a huge case. Like Zach Ramsey is absolutely nut. Not so, is absolutely bonkers how they handled the case. But and I'll I'll go into Doc a little bit more because Doc is also very heavily introduced and gone through in the book. But I just don't want to spend the time on it right now because we're telling a story about Nathaniel Barjona. Well, fuck them both. Yeah, for sure. In nineteen ninety five, Barjona got a job at Hardee's in Great Falls. He started out cleaning the machines at night and quickly gets promoted up to fry cook. He claims to need an assistant, and that's when he meets his future fiance, Pam. Pam was an overweight woman from South Dakota that ended up in Montana with, with no friends and no money. She got a job at the local Hardee's as an assistant to the fry cook, and she somehow fell in love with Barjona, and the two quickly became engaged. I don't know how you can fall in love with a fat toothless mustached short dumb frumpy piece of shit that it's over the common love of hardy's bro and well, i don't understand what kind of fry cook needs a fucking assistant well at he hardy's. also cleaned the machines and prepped the chicken katie it's a- and what kind of employer would be like oh you're the fry cook yeah let me get you an assistant like he was really good at making the fries crisscross crisscross regular fries when they changed over to the natural potato fries he was the only one who could cook them right. They got him an assistant, and it was 
you know, love at first sight for that big fat chick. And just imagine him now. He's what, three, four hundred pounds, sweaty all the time. He's a fry cook, so even sweatier. And now he smells like, um, French fries and rotten fry grease. Mm-hmm. That's why she was all about him. The two moved in together, but Bar Jonah would barely touch her and chose to spend most of his time out in the garage, one of the garages that opened up into the alley. He would spend all day down there and sometimes just end up sleeping on the floor. Bar Jonah had been building a puppet theater for the neighborhood kids. Pam was very proud of Bar Jonah for doing something for the community. Wrong, Pam. Mr. Popcorn Head was a hit, and word quickly spread through the community about the Saturday afternoon after, about the Saturday afternoon puppet shows. <laughs> Bar Jonah would lure kids in and put their parents at ease with his kindness and fun-loving uncle persona. This was just another tactic he picked up to help familiarize himself with the neighborhood, the families, and the children that were around him. It's not something to be proud of. And Pam was definitely a cover to oh, make yeah. himself seem even less threatening than he tried to make himself seem. That's why he never touched her and never looked at her and didn't want to spend time with her because she was around strictly to make him not well, look actually, like a pedophile. They, they spent a lot of time together. Like, they'd go out and drive around and do shit like that, but... So people would see him yeah, with her. basically, but she also had, like, a whole string of bad relationships, was abused, all sorts of terrible shit happened to her, so it's kind of understandable why a guy like bar jonah somewhat appealed to her i guess oh yeah i mean you have a relationship and someone that provides for you but none of the other stuff that can lead to i guess turmoil yeah you don't have to have sex you don't really have to do anything for him and he's never around so easy peasy right in july 1997 bar jonah decided it was time that they got their own space and moved into an apartment right between his favorite elementary schools. He had favorite elementary schools. Yep. And he just picked the spot on the mat right between them. Yep. A month later, his fiance Pam moved into the second bedroom. All is not well in the household, but Pam hangs in there because Bar Jonah still treats her better than any man has. She can forgive his laziness, religious beliefs on touching a woman, late night walks, and random violent bursts of fury. Also, the weird attraction to other people's kids, she just sort of ignored. At the end, she's like, that, that's not a big deal either, I guess. We'll just let that slide real quick. I had a question. So he told her that it was his religious beliefs is why they didn't yeah, he get not, intimate? Yeah. You marry, and unmarried couples don't sleep together. Uh, but they can still eat together. Yeah. The worst fight they ever had was about a woman named Sherry that Bar Jonah had met and invited her to live with him on this very same day. So he was trying to have two, his girlfriend live with him and this random woman that he found? Well, I'll tell you. Sherry had rolled into town with a string of bad luck behind her. She was broke, had nowhere to go, and absolutely no path in life when she pulled into the antique mall in Great Falls, Montana. She walked inside and came across Barjona on the floor hanging out with a small boy. Sherry interrupted and asked Barjona if he'd be interested in buying any of the stuff she had in the back of her car. She explained her bad luck to Barjona, who, being a good Christian man, immediately invited her to live on his couch. She believed that she had just had an upturn in her luck, 
but little did she know that she would hear the confession of a monster. And her luck just kept getting worse. Yeah. Poor Sherry. Bar Jonah needed to get something off of his chest, and he felt that his brand new roommate, Sherry, would understand. Bar Jonah had just returned home after a long cruise after Pam and his major argument about Sherry that had sent Pam out to wander the hospital across the street, distraught and with nowhere else to go. Just like jumping in on people's rooms? Yeah. He lit a cigarette and asked Sherry to meet him in the kitchen at the table. Sherry agreed and sat across from Bar Jonah at the dining room. She agreed and Sherry sat down across from Bar Jonah. Bar Jonah began to speak about a young boy named Zach, the old man, and the policeman. Do we need like a graphic warning right here or something? Yeah, it's pretty rough here. So it gets a little rough with uh, Zach. So if you if if you're not into it, skip ahead about five ten minutes to the end of the episode. If you are into it, two fuck weeks from you. now. <laughs> two weeks from now. Two weeks from now, now you can back. listen again. Katie will be back on it, and I won't be destroying my everyday life by thinking about this guy. Anyway, Zach would walk the same route to school every day, down the alley and to the left. That's where he would meet the policeman. The policeman would stand by the trash can and at first watch Zach, admiring him from afar. When the policeman was comfortable, he began to talk and walk with the boy. It was then that the policeman knew he loved him. He would bring him small gifts and treasures. This eventually led to Zach coming home with the policeman, where they hang out, draw, and play with toys. But the policeman wasn't the only one that had been admiring Zack. The old man at the end of the alley also had his eyes on him. He would invite him in for cocoa and was trying to steal Zack from the policeman. The policeman was jealous and wanted Zack all to himself. On the morning Zack went missing, the policeman had been waiting by the dumpster for him. He wanted to go to the good guy breakfast at school with Zack, but Zack had told him that he was going with the old man down the street. The police had warned Zack that he was not to see the old man anymore, so he was very angry. The policeman managed to coax him into his undercover car, and by the time they turned down the next alley, Zack was unconscious. The policeman slipped a rope around the boy's neck and would choke him unconscious every time he started to wake. The policeman drove the boy to a cabin of a fellow church member who he knew would not be there. He carried the boy into the cabin and laid him on the dusty floor. The policeman rubbed his rough cheeks against the boy's face to wake him up. Zack's hand shot up and grabbed the coat of the policeman, ripping part of it. When the policeman managed to get the boy to let go of his coat, Zack grabbed his thumb and twisted it hard backwards. This enraged the policeman and he began to choke and punch the boy in the face until he was sure he would not wake up and ruin the rest of the night. After raving the boy a few times, the policeman went back to his car and grabbed a large piece of plywood and rope and brought them back to the cabin. He tied the small boy to the board and dragged the body to the beach. The policeman dropped the board into the sand on the little beach and the boy began to squirm and fight to try and break free. But the policeman knew it was futile, but he would miss the tenacity of the boy. He pulled his knife and began to cut the tendons to stop the boy from wiggling as much. The knife slipped easily through the boy's flesh, but with a stab that stuck through the board, the policeman had hurt his hand and became enraged. 
He stabbed the boy over and over, listening to the gurgling blood as the boy took his last breaths. The policeman sat back and looked at his handiwork, catching his breath before the work really began. The policeman took fillets, ribs, flanks, rump, shoulder, and a few bones for stock. He cut the boy's body and dumped parts into the lake, cleaned his equipment, wrapped up the meat he removed, and headed back home. Sherry needed to understand that the policeman was a Christian soldier doing God's work. At that, Barjona got up from the table and left Sherry sitting there in shock at the confession she had just heard. So we're going to stop there for this week. Next week we will cover more on Zach Ramsey, Doc, and the boys that eventually led to Barjona's arrest, Stanley, Stormy, and Roland. Also, Barjona fucking dies. So good. Nice. I'm very happy with that part. Does he but, die in prison? Yeah. Because he's a pedophile? Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Painfully? No, he has a fucking heart attack. Don't ruin it, Rory. I'm going to delete all of that, but it's so fucking annoying. I why, did, why did he uh, make himself a policeman in that story? Because, because it was a way of telling the story without implicating himself. And he always wore his... Police yeah. jacket. Remember oh, from episode one, he had his right. little badge in his undercover car. Yeah, he still used that tactic. By the way, he still oh. wore the. He would wear the police jacket and the badge and walk around inside of schools, shaking the hands of teachers, talking to them, and he just basically ingrained himself in every way that a predator can. And it's really fucking frightening at what level he operates as a child predator. It's fucking insane fucking psycho yeah and he just gets more and more bold and violent going forward and i think with doc kind of egging him on too oh yeah him and doc are the two most fucking awful people i've ever read about doc is an absolutely disgusting piece of shit human being and barjona is just a step above him above him huh yeah i mean barjona's the worst i don't think doc ever killed no, children he just he just molested them he would take in kids in need and he would give them a place to stay in his stinky shithole house. And he would use and abuse them. And then when he got bored with them, he would kick them back out to the streets and find another boy to quote-unquote love. And his obsession with Zach is disturbing on a different level. Like, especially the way he considers it, um, love and stuff. It's just... But we'll get into that next week. Gross. Yeah. Um, so as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. You can head over there for a full episode list or to send us any ideas for an episode that you might want to hear or to get your free sticker from our merch store by entering the code Bingo Bango at checkout. So I got nothing witty for you guys. This is a brutal episode. It only gets worse. Like you always think like, oh, there's some end in sight, but it just keeps getting worse and worse and... Antidepressants, you are. Yeah, it's going to be happening here pretty quick. That's what I do. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. The way you describe ejaculation absolutely disturbs the shit out of me, and I wish you wouldn't do it.